Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds. Boldly go where no one has gone before. Engage. Engage. Earth Enterprise, Enterprise. This is Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Captain Catherine Janeway. Captain Sisko. This is Captain Jonathan Archer. Red alert. Photon torpedoes. Fire. The official Star Trek podcast. Engage. Engage. Make it so. With your host, Jordan Hoffman. That, sir, is illogical. And to make sure history never forgets. This is Engage. Sailing frequencies open, sir. Hey, hey. All right. We are back with another episode of Engage. The official Star Trek podcast. Engage. And I am Jordan Hoffman, your host. And uh, I hope you listened last week because this is uh, part two of a series of our, uh, our our away mission. I took the mobile emitter and went way up north to the frozen lands of Ticonderoga, New York, which is uh, not too far. I'd say it's about three and a half, four hours north of New York City, about two hours south of Montreal, Canada. And on a beautiful lake called Lake George. And if you listened last week, you know that the original series set tour is there. A great place to go in summertime. Uh, our friend James Cauley, who led uh, the tour, um, took us through. And it's great. It's like walking through a dream. I mean, you heard it. Brian, you heard it, right? I, I'm, I'm about halfway through it as of now. <laughs> as of this recording. So, but yes, it sounds like a lot of fun so far. It's a lot of fun. It's if you're a fan, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's got literally has all the whistles and bells. And what the reason we were there is a special day called Authors Day, and they had not they invited a, a number of Star Trek authors, the book authors, uh, like our friend David Mack, who's been on this show twice, um, and about a, I think it was like thirteen altogether. And they set up their little booths and they sold stuff and gave autographs and, and took pictures of one another. And it was a great time. And since I was there taking the tour myself, I said, I'm not going to pass up an opportunity to speak to some of these people, some of whom I've never met and have wanted to meet for a long time. So what did I do? I made it so. Make it so. I decided to interrupt these people in the middle of their commerce. There they were, talking to their to their uh, public, making a dime. And I said, let me tear you away. And we spoke to four. I, we didn't want to go overboard. So we spoke to Michael Jan Friedman. We spoke to David Gallanter, we spoke to Kevin Dilmore, and we spoke to Keith R.A. DeCandido. And we're going to have hear those conversations now. In the order, um, I think what we're going to do it is, uh, I think we'll do Michael first. Brian, take a note, because you're the one that has to edit this together. <laughs> yes, sir. And we're going to uh, do Michael first, and then Keith. It was very funny, but Keith's was the longest one. Then we'll do David, and I only spoke to him, David Gallanter. I thought it was only like five minutes, because I don't know, he had to go somewhere. And then we'll, we'll wrap it all up with Kevin, who's like an old chum. Uh, Kevin is, uh, you know, Dayton Ward's, um, uh, frequently works alongside Dayton Ward, and Dayton has been a guest on the show before, and Kevin's a wonderful man. And he, uh, you know, you want to close it out with him, because he, he is, and I'm not I'm being deadly serious, he's a sweet and gentle man. I really love Kevin uh, Dilmore. Kevin, if you're listening, I love you. Dayton, if you're listening, I love you too. Damn it, I love everybody. Um, and you know what else I love, Brian? I don't know. What is it? I love having enough space on my hard drive. Oh, so do I. <laughs> well, the good people at Western Digital love this podcast, and they have decided to sponsor us, and thank God for that, because they know that our listeners are the type of people 
who um, need plenty of space uh, uh, when they're doing their computing, right? Yes. We are not casual people who zip around with a with one of those thin little air computers. No, we have a station where we really compute with a capital K. We compute. <laughs> And what we need is a serious hard drive for serious business. And if you are thinking about getting a new one, the one you want is Western Digital, WD. And I'm going to tell you that with WD, you are now able to get solid state drives and hard drives to fit your unique needs. When you add the superior performance of a WD solid state drive to your PC, you get blazing read speed so you can boot your system quickly or load games or other applications in a snap. Combined with the reliable WD hard drive, you get up to how many terabytes? Six terabytes. Six terabytes. <laughs> no, I mean, this is serious business. That's a lot. That's a it's lot a, of it space. It really is a lot of space. You can save in that's like insane the, amounts of that's things. That's like the entire beta quadrant is six terabytes. That's Very possible. A lot of space. You get six terabytes of storage to keep your games library, direct feed videos, podcasts, and more all in a single place. And, and this is kind of the important part. This has all been a prelude to this. And then I'll stop talking about it. But this is kind of a big deal. For a limited time, shut up. For a limited time, engaged listeners can get 20% off uh, a WD solid state drive. 20% off is no joke. So if, you're, if you've been thinking about getting a new drive, do it. You're hearing my voice. Now's the time. Now's the time. Just hit pause on me. Open up another window, go to W, or you can keep playing and listening. Go WD.com slash engage, and there's a coupon code. WD.com slash engage. Check out the drive that's good for you. You know, save yourself because you're at the max on the old one. You want a nice, fresh, clean, solid state drive and use WD engage, all one word. It's like WDGENGAGE. WD engage, WDENGAGE is the coupon code. WD engage, and you go to WD.com slash engage. All right, make it happen. And that's how you're going to get a great, uh, a great situation with your computer. So now we're going to go back in time. We're going to go back. We are upstate, Ticonderoga, New York. Listen to last week's show if you missed it. Uh, but now we're going to talk to our fun friends who were up there a few weeks ago. Okay, so we're recording, and we're back here, and we've got in the hot seat now Michael Jan Friedman, who has written probably up up there with Peter David and David Mack, one of the... Have you written the most Star Trek books of all, or is it still Peter David? Uh, I think Peter may have written more than I have. I've written about 35 Star Trek That's a lot. Books. That's a lot. And, and not just Star Trek, also you've written uh, DC Comics and... Uh, right, another about yeah, yeah, about about seventy five books altogether, and probably close to two hundred comics. Wow. Okay. So you just keep your laptop with you at all times, constantly creating, constantly creating content. I, I'm I'm really not in the twenty first century to tell you the truth. <laughs> I, I I came up here without a GPS. I I don't have a laptop, but I I do I do have this computer at home, and I, and and that works pretty well. So, um, so um, taking this tour today, I mean, you've never been up here before, right? Never been here. No. Uh, but you've been to uh, conventions, and they sometimes try to recreate the set, or they a bridge, or they have the captain's chair, or whatnot. But this is just a whole other, a whole other scene, right? It is. It is. I think. I think because it's not just one set, 
it's you know it's the the bridge it's engineering it's it's sick bay it's the corridors you you, you kind of immerse yourself in it in a way that you wouldn't if if it was just one set on a on a dealer's room floor yeah 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 is there a part of you that wishes you had seen these 20 years ago to kind of help you get into the mindset of what you're writing Would no helped you in any way shape or form or is it all imagination probably not because you know what you have here are are props essentially you know it's it's a it's a it's a location full of props and it's a lot of fun and it's and you know it makes me feel good to do it but i don't i don't know that it would have enhanced my writing necessarily um, cuz you have the, you have the, you're working from basically the same evidence that they are you can see the episodes and that was you know i i think that was enough um, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't see, uh, I don't see a particular advantage as a writer. But I, but I have a feeling other writers would say otherwise, because the kind of pictures they were taking looked to me like they were going to be reference. Ah, so this is a big, uh, this is a, a, a research trip, not just a fun trip, is what you're suggesting. That's right. That's right. Not, not so much for me, but I think for some of the others, I think definitely it was. I want to talk a little bit about writing uh, Trek novels, just sort of. Um, how, how did you? What was your process getting into the mindset of, you know, when you're writing? I know you have a table full of books here, and some of them are your created, your own original, you know, created characters and whatnot. But when you're jumping into Kirk, Spock, McCoy, or Next Gen or something, characters that people already know, how, how do you get into the mindset to get in that groove of, you know, you got to put your stamp on McCoy or, or Kirk or Spock or somebody, but it's still got to be the guy everybody knows. Well. I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. One, one thing, one big thing that people may overlook a little bit is, is the dialogue. There are certain things that certain characters do when they speak. And if you capture those things, people go, wow, you've captured the character. Mm. You know, um, Picard, when he addressed Riker, would all say, will always say, number one. If you could start a sentence with number one, it went a long way toward giving the impression that, that you've really captured the character. Yeah, and yeah. So they, there was just certain key words and phrases in the dialogue. Um, in terms of, in terms of you know, it, 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 it's a little bit of a, of a high wire act, capturing the character and also expanding the character. Mm. Can't expand them too much, but if you don't expand them at all, then it's it's kind of boring. You have right, right. If everything sets back to exactly the same spot, it's what's what's the point of this in a way? So you have to kind of you have to say I'm gonna I'm gonna do something incremental. If I do something too big, they won't let me do it. If I do something too small, it's insignificant. So you're just gonna make some incremental change in the character that won't that won't be at odds with what they have planned uh, in the TV series or in the movies. I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you a question you're gonna hate. But if somebody is like, you know, I've always wanted to read one of your books, but I haven't done it yet, what would be the first one that you recommend? Of one of your Star Trek books, obviously. Which, I, I would say... And you can only pick one. And I can only pick one. <laughs> I would say Double Double. It was, it was the first book that I wrote uh, back in the 80s. And um, um, I think it's as good an introduction as any to my writing. You know, it's funny. It's a, little, it's, a, it's a little discouraging because that was the first Star Trek book I did. I think also it was one of my best. 
Yeah. It was, Chasing the dragon ever since. <laughs> right? It was like um, 30 years of pent-up, of, of pent-up... Uh, um, Star Trek Star love. Star Trek yeah. love, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so, I, so that made it a good And book. this is a TOS book, right? It's an original series book, yeah. and, uh, and it, it takes off where What Are Little Girls Made Of leaves off. Oh. Which oh. Trek universe are you most comfortable in? Ian just asked, which Trek universe are you most comfortable in? Well, I think, um, I think it would be a toss-up between uh, original series and next-gen. Maybe maybe a little more next gen at this point. Um, obviously, the first book or two that I wrote was was original series because next gen was only getting started. But but I like I like those. Um, I'm pretty comfortable in in Deep Space Nine and Voyager as well. But 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 I like original series and next gen better than the other uh, incarnations. Now you also had a hand in writing the Voyager episode Resistance. Mm-hmm. How did that come about? What was that experience like? And how happy were you with the finished episode? Oh, how happy! Oh my God! Um, For those who could not hear, Ian asked about uh, the episode Resistance season. What of Voyager was that? It was. Uh, it came out in December of. I, I'm not sure if it was technically first season. I think it was December of the second year. Okay, so early on in Voyager, the episode mm-hmm. Resistance, you were the co co teleplay author of. Right. And Ian asks, how happy were you with the finished result? And even though listeners can't see it, I'll try to describe the look on your face. <laughs> he <laughs> well, gave. I'll a, tell he, you. Yes, tell us, please. You know, first of all, um, my my writing partner in in the, you know for that, uh, Kevin Ryan and I had been pitching for years. And, and we had gotten lots of encouragement from the um, from the producers of, the, of each particular show. We had pitched to Next Gen. We had pitched to Deep Space Nine. And we'd gotten lots of encouragement, but as Kevin used to say, it was a lot of nibbles, no bites. You know, typically they would say, yes, it's in development. Yeah, we're doing that. No, we were going to do that. We decided not to because of this. Very seldom did they say, no, we don't like that idea. So we were encouraged, and we kept pitching, kept pitching. Finally, we pitched one time to Jerry Taylor, and uh, the pitch was uh, Janeway plays Dulcinea to a Quezon Don Quixote. <laughs> and she said, I really like that. Let's, let's hold on to that one. We pitched our others, and, and she goes, the, the, the Don Quixote one, I really like that. We've never done that. And, um, and I think it would be great for Janeway. Let me just talk to the rest of the writing staff and see, you know, just to check. But I, I think we're going to buy that. So the next morning, we talked to her, and she goes, yep, we want it. But I have to tell you something. This morning, we got substantially the same pitch. And had you pitched in the afternoon instead of yesterday, we would have taken the other one. Uh-huh. That's how yeah. tenuous it is. You know, they they would get a thousand pitches from you know two hundred different people, yeah. and uh, and uh, they only took uh, uh, four or five, I think. So the odds of, of of being able to do that were were you know they they were astronomical against, and. Um, and I didn't find it hard to believe at all that somebody else had come up with the same idea. We were just lucky that we came up with it, what, 16 hours earlier. <laughs> um, how happy was I? I was, I was ecstatic. I was ecstatic because there's a huge difference between um, being a, somebody who, who writes Trek 
and somebody who is part of the Star Trek, who has contributed directly to the Star Trek mythos, the screen product. It, it's just a quantum leap, and um, uh, you know, it's on cloud nine. Um, the experience, uh, um, by the way, was was wonderful. You know, you hear about all these people who have Hollywood horror stories. Oh, they took my baby, they mangled it, they spit it out. It, it was nothing like what I offered them. I felt abused and abused and dirty. Nothing like that for us. I mean, we were we were very well respected. We were kept abreast of everything. We were invited to the shoot. Um, uh, Jerry Taylor couldn't have been more, you know, nicer or more professional. Uh, they shared everything, and uh, and it was a great, great experience. The the only thing that surprised us was we had or had um, intended for the Don Quixote character to be a Brian Dennehy type. In fact, we were thinking they would probably get Brian Dennehy, and instead they got Joel Gray. <laughs> and when we and when we we heard that, it was like Joel Gray, what? But when we saw the episode, yeah. we were thrilled because it was the, by, to me, it was by far the best performance I'd ever seen him give. It, it couldn't have been better. Yeah. Probably the type of role he doesn't normally get, so he was very excited to put his spin on it. And apparently yeah. he's, he's friends with um, Kate Mulgrew. Kate Mulgrew ah. and I thought you were going to say Miguel de Cervantes. Yeah. He's very good friends <laughs> with him. No, he's not that old. Not that old. Right, right, right. right, 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 right. <laughs> they went to school together. And Remo uh, Williams. Yeah, and Remo, oh, and Remo Williams. Right, right, right. So I think um, they knew each other. They were friends. And I, and, um, I think that was a factor in how well it you, You've written also some, and Ian mentioned this a moment ago, some of the reference books. You did the, did you do the Q book? Was that you? I you did Q's, Q, Guide, Q's to Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah, you know, we were... Did, was that like written in collaboration with John DeLancey in some was, way? Or? No, no. Okay. It was written in collaboration He's, with Bob Greenberger, as a matter of fact. Oh, really? Bob contributed to it. So that. tell me about, what, what's, what's that like to do one of those kind of fun... Uh, non-canonical uh, cues. And there's a few, you know, there's Neelix's cookbook is a bestseller, yeah, has sold yeah. a tremendous amount, amount of uh, copies and Q's Guide to the Galaxy. Something that I have, it's a blast. You know, it's a fun, fun little book. Um, I, it was, I, I had the idea, I, I brought it to Margaret Clark, who's the editor I was working with at the time. And, and um, there were books that, um, uh, like DC Comics, they come out with a series of books called Big Book of. The big book right. of little crooks, the big book of uh, conspiracies, and and these these artif artifacts in the in the book, I thought were fascinating, and I thought if we could do that for Star Trek, and then we and I was thinking, well, you know, we could make it funny. Yeah, and uh, and we did, and it, it was uh, it was it was a ton of fun to write. Um, Bob and I have collaborated on other things, uh, so it was. That went very well, and uh, but we know John Delancey was actually not a part of that. Gotcha. Although I have collaborated with him on a comic book story. Oh, really? There was a Q story. Well, he, he knew that you got Q's voice right in the Guide to the Galaxy. So yeah, he, right, right. What was the Q story you did with him? It was a story, uh, uh, a Q and Picard story that um, that appeared in one of the DC. Next Generation uh, Annuals. Gotcha. And he had gotcha. written it and originally, and 
they thought it needed some work, and, and I think he was disinclined to do that. So they brought me in, and, and we didn't actually talk about it, but, but we did eventually, in effect, work together. Let me ask you a fan culture question. You can be diplomatic if you must, because you span all things, DC Comics and Trek, and you come to events like this, and then you go to sort of, you know, more comic book-focused events. Is there something different in the DNA of someone who's just a Trek fan as opposed to somebody who's just a comic book fan? Um, is there sometimes, sometimes, I mean, sometimes they're one and the same and sometimes they have tons in common. Um, comic book fans, um, are often more, um, in, uh, enchanted by the artwork. Ah. Okay. Yeah. And that's, you know, somebody who, who's really into the artwork would not necessarily be a Star Trek fan. The Star Trek fans are about about the um, uh, the, the continuity and the philosophy yeah. and the and the literary aspects of it. Um, even when it comes to comics, I remember having a conversation with the Justice League editor, uh, you know, quite some time ago, and he was saying, in the Star Trek comics, why don't you have more action? Why isn't there more, you know, superhero style? Action. Why is it so much? Why are there so many talking heads? Yeah. And I said because these talking heads are saying interesting things, <laughs> and and that's what let them talk. That's right. what Star Trek readers yeah. want to read. That's and interesting. The, I mean, you're, you're speaking in generalities, but I think you're you're, you're right. I mean, so, as a general rule, um, the comics in Star Trek are usually are not. Quite as all in in just the artwork and the you know the look that the, there's no uh, there's no Jack Kirby of Star Trek comics but um, but that's okay you know it's different strokes yeah, so yeah Michael what's the most recent Trek thing you've written and when will you be doing more or will you be doing more the most recent Trek thing I, I I've written I think was Death in Winter which is which came out about 10 12 years ago um, but I was I was at a convention. Um, uh, at the uh, Star Trek uh, convention in October, I think it was, in, uh, in New York. And I spoke to uh, the, the uh, Ed Schlesinger, who's in charge of the Star Trek uh, publishing program. And, uh, and, and we did talk about my doing uh, some new Trek work. Right now, they, they, they're renegotiating their license. But um, pretty soon, I hope to uh, to have something lined up with them again. And real quick, what else are you working on now? Doesn't have to be tracked. Uh, what else am I working on? Uh, well, one thing, uh, two two things uh, come to mind. One is um, uh, I'm a founding member of Crazy Eight Press, where um, I and uh, six other uh, uh, established writers work on our our purest visions. The, the, the kinds of stories that uh, traditional publishers can't necessarily touch because they need certain numbers, and we don't. And, uh, and these are the, these kinds of stories that are nearest and dearest to us. Um, the other thing I'm working on is, is um, a comic book called Empty Space. And it's kind of a, I'm going to say, it's kind of a cross between Star Trek and Lost. So it's, it's weird. It's weird stuff happening. And what you would what you initially think is, oh, it's kind of a Star Trek environment, um, with a, a Brazilian artist, a great artist, uh, his name is Caio Cacau, he does my book covers, 
and um, and he's uh, he's a very talented guy. And and Empty Space, I'm hoping, will will uh, launch on Comicsology in a couple of months. Oh wow, yeah. awesome, cool, uh, great. Well, listen, thank you so much for taking. I mean, there's you want to get back to your booth there, but. Uh, Thanks so much for taking the time. We're big fans of you uh, here. And you're in New York, right? Yes, I am. You know, one yeah. of these days we'll have you come up to Deck 44, our studio, and we'll do a more thorough, a thorough going over of, your, of everything. But for now, thanks so much. Great. My pleasure. Awesome. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. Energize. Okay, so we're back. We're back on Engage. We've got one of the greats with us here today, the Bron- Bronx's favorite son, <laughs> Keith R.A. DeCandido. I pronounced that all correct? DeCandido. DeCandido. It's on this, the accent. Everybody there. gets it wrong. It's well, fine. And K-Rad, as we like to call him, is uh, <laughs> we've wanted to have him on the show for a while, but I've been too lazy to call you up. And now... Uh, yeah, I'm really hard to find, too. <laughs> I just I have such a minimal online presence. How that was sarcasm. many... Um, how many Star Trek books have you written? And we're including e-novels and e-dishes. Oh, give me the um, number. Like you don't have it memorized. No, I don't, actually. I've got about 15 novels and books, and then on top of that, about uh, about 10 e-books. All right. novellas. And then about a half dozen short stories and six comic books. And your favorite... I know what your favorite is, but tell me. What's your favorite? you got to pick one. Ugh... Probably my favorite of the ones I've written would be Articles of the of Federation. Of course. That was what um, I knew you would say. Because I'll tell I, you why. Can I tell you why tell it's your favorite? Tell me why. Tell me why that's my be, favorite book. I'm going to tell, tell you why. Because um, there are a zillion great Star Trek books, but, you know, they're set on the Enterprise. They're set on Voyager. That Articles of the Federation is really the only one that's set off stage, right? It's set on no, a few Earth. others. I mean, I'd, I'd argue the final reflection falls into that category too. But don't uh, ruin my theory here okay, on the podcast. <laughs> no, but what I'm saying is, it is a, uh, it is for fans who are always like, hey, what's 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 happening down on Earth while all those things are happening? Well, what that, is that was part of the impetus for writing it. I mean, the, the the TV shows and the movies have given us plenty of looks at the Klingon government, the Cardassian government, the Romulan government, the Bajoran government. We never really got to, and like the governments of individual planets that they would visit that week, um, and, but we never really got a good look at the Federation government. We got we had three three times we saw a Federation president, uh, once we saw the Federation Council, and that was it. Yeah, it, it just and uh, th- there needed to be something that explored it. I mean, we knew more about the inner workings of the Klingon High Council than we did the Federation <laughs> Council. And that's wrong. And, uh, <laughs> I, I always thought that was something that needed to be explored. Yeah. So I did. <laughs> and and, and what, what, one of the reasons why it's one of my favorites is not just that I enjoyed writing it, although I did, um, but it also the influence that the book has had uh, mm. since then. In the, in the 12 years since the book came out, um, it's been the touchstone for how to write the Federation government in all the 24th century literature since then. The character of Nanbako became a major supporting character in the Trek fiction, which is not something I ever imagined happening. I figured she'd show up in that novel and that would be it. Yeah. And she might get mentioned once or twice as a as a as a you know a cameo or a gag or something, I did not expect her to become a major supporting character or you know, unfortunately for her death to actually be the launching point of a major series you right, know. Right. So that was just it blew my mind and it's it's it was one of the coolest things. That's one of the reasons why it's my favorite. It's not yeah. just the book itself, which I still am quite proud of, 
Um, You've also sunk your teeth deep into Klingons. A little bit, yeah. With the IKS Gorkon <laughs> trilogy, or is it a tetralogy, actually? Well, there were, there were, there were three books that were billed IKS Gorkon. I had written two previous stories that the Gorkon appeared in, and then... Um, one, one uh, Next Generation novel that introduced them, and then in the Brave and the Bold crossover series. And then I did three IKS Gorkon books and one Klingon Empire book. Um, right, the House Devo- the A Burning ha- House. A Burning House. Yes. Now, Keith, there are some listeners, we have a wide diversity range of people. Some listeners have read every, utter- every utterance of every author here. Okay. And some haven't really gotten into Star Trek books. And, and some hearing, are sitting there wondering, who is this DeCandido no, dude, well, and why am I listening to him? They're saying yeah. IKS Gorkon. What the heck is that? That sounds kind of cool. Ship. Give uh, us a little intro into the IKS the, Gorkon. The, the Gorkon is uh, a Klingon ship. Its mission is to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, and conquer them for the greater glory of the Klingon Empire. Oh, a little twist um, there. Yeah. It's it's basically doing Star Trek adventures from the Klingon perspective. Yeah. Um, it's got them really are, are do actually seek out new life and new civilizations. They're, they're doing an uh, exploration. Uh, they encounter interesting alien species and deal with them in a very Klingon way. Um and then in the, the, the Klingon Empire book, which was uh, uh, A Burning House, I wanted to take a broader look at the Empire generally, using the Gorkon as the base for it. Um, in the third book, they were in a major skirmish, and the, the ship got the crap kicked out of it. So they had to report back to Kronos and get the ship, fit, rip, ship repaired. And while it was being repaired, the crew goes off and you know visits home or visits wherever they got to go. Um, and they all have different adventures. So we got to look at a Klingon farm, a Klingon opera company... <laughs> Um, a Klingon medical conference, which is scary. Um, and, and plus there's the usual, you know, political intrigue. There's yeah, a thing with yeah. imperial intelligence. Uh, but, but I wanted to, and there's also, we also get to see a Klingon slum, what that looks like. Oh, um, wow. Just generally, you know, looking at, because in, in the shows and the movies, we've only seen the military and the government. And since it's a military dictatorship, the military is the government. Yeah. Um, but we don't get to see everyday life very often. Right, right. The nature, the nature of it, of of this type of dramatic fiction is that we only see a very limited sampling of the people who live right, there. Right, and th- that's always been a great selling point yeah. for these novels. Mm-hmm. Is uh, what do our characters do on their off hours? Yeah. You know, and yeah, you get exactly. occasional episodes like like Lower Decks and TNG season seven, yeah. but you know, um, you get to really sink your teeth into it with with this sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, and that, that was that was part of the appeal of, bo- of both those books, um, both both articles of the Federation and um, and the, and the Kl- and the Klingon books, uh, and another book I did, which which I honestly think is. Looking at it objectively, as objectively as I can, my own work, the best novel I've ever written, Star Trek or otherwise, which was a Lost Era novel called The Art of the Impossible. Aha. Uh-huh. Which, um... Tell people what Lost Era is, if they're... The Lost Era is a series, it's an umbrella title for a series of books. We did six of them in 2003, and there have been a few more since. It's any novel, it's a novel that takes place between the Generations Prelude, when, when Kirk got swallowed by the Nexus, yes. and Encounter at Farpoint, when the Enterprise D launches. It's that little There's era about in between. 70 years of time in there. Yeah. Um, that is has been explored in bits and pieces here and there, but there's a whole raft of storytelling possibilities. Yeah. There have been novels in that time period that have involved the Enterprise B uh, with Captain right. Harriman, yeah. uh, that involved Sulu on the Excelsior, yeah. and then later stuff, uh, one of them uh, focused on Riker in his, the early days of his career, um, things like that. Uh, Christopher Bennett did a novel that uh, showed Picard's time between when he lost the Stargazer and when he took over the Enterprise. Um, David R. George did a, did a Harriman story. Andy Mangels and Mike Martin did an Excelsior story. What I did, 
was uh, there was a 30 second conversation between Bashir and Garrick in The Way of the Warrior, which was the fourth season premiere of Deep Space Nine, where they mentioned the Betrika, ne the Betrika Nebula incident. <laughs> what we know about the Betrika Nebula incident is as follows. One, yeah. it involved the Klingons and the Cardassians. Two, it was, according to Garrick, ages ago. Right. And three, peculiarly for an incident, it lasted 18 years. That's a long incident. Using only these three facts as the basis, <laughs> I built an entire 100,000-word novel <laughs> um, that took place during this 70-year during this period. It, it starts in 2328, which is roughly... Um, uh, it was. It was. I'm trying to remember why I picked that date in particular. It was over a decade ago. But um, basically, that that was roughly when Cardassia first made contact with Bajor. Right. Okay. Um, okay. Good. Yeah. It ended in 2346, which was the year of the Kittimer massacre. Um, that uh, claimed Worf's parents. Right. And or so uh, we thought. And also when uh, Station Tarak Nor was built. That was exactly 18 years, and I figured that was a good span to do. Um, and it's it's this Cold War that erupts between the Cardassians and the Klingons. There's, it never actually breaks out into a full-blown war, but there's a great deal of tension and conflict over the claim, cl a claim over one particular planet that's halfway between both of them, uh, near the Batrika Nebula, hence the name of the incident. And what was fun about it was dealing with all the different aspects of how this affected normal people. Yeah. Uh, how it affected the military, how it affected... My, my two favorite chapters I wrote in it were when tensions are particularly nasty between the Klingons and the Cardassians. There is a Klingon who has opened a Klingon restaurant on Cardassia Prime. <laughs> um, That's and, sort of your stock is the culture and how it affects yeah, the day-to-day. -day, exactly. You know? yeah. This is a guy who, if he tried to open a Klingon restaurant in Klingon space, he would have been eaten alive because there right. was, you know, there's not enough... You know, there's plenty of Klingon restaurants, right, but right, in right. Cardassia, he's unique. He's right. Being, you know, he's it's exotic. And it would be the type of thing that certain dissident people would like, let's go get Klingon food on Cardassia, exactly. you know? Um, and so he winds up being uh, attacked by Cardassian, the Cardassian military because Klingons are no longer welcome on Cardassia. And then the next chapter is a Cardassian who is retired. And what he is doing in his retirement is going to different worlds, and he's a, he's a climber. He likes yeah. to climb mountains. So he's going to different worlds and finding cool mountains to climb, and he's climbing one inkling on space. He gets back down from the mountain and gets basically attacked. Um, because Klingons are pissed at Cardassians also. Um, and he doesn't even know anything about the Klingons. He he's, he's an old retired guy. He just wants to climb his <laughs> mountains, and all of a sudden he's attacked. So that that's the kind of thing I like, I like to do generally, is how big events affect... Everyday people. Yeah, yeah. Um, what was the name of that one again? That was called I, The Art of the Impossible. The Art of the Impossible, okay. What, what's what's interesting about the book to me is that there isn't a single protagonist, really. It's, yeah. it's about the... There's there's a lot... There's several characters who play major roles in it, including Curzon Dax has a very large role in it. Oh, Curzon um, Dax. Okay, yeah. The Worf, Worf's family plays a role in it. Um, his grandfather, who we saw defending Kirk and McCoy in Star Trek VI, sure. you see him as an older man, yeah. as uh, a general. Um, or, yeah, General Worf. Um... And then uh, we also see his mother and father, Moog, and uh, I, I actually didn't name his mother because she didn't have one. I Mrs. Moog. Mamog. <laughs> um, and I actually dramatized the Kittimer Massacre, too. Oh, man. That was, that was part of what I did with that, was, was actually show that happening. Uh, including Worf's rescue sure. and, and why the Rojenkos took him in and, and, and so on. You know, he's Moses, by the way. Really? Think about it. He's left in a basket. Wasn't a basket. He's left in a basket on Kittimer, and his parents take him. I, to me, Worf is Moses. Okay. <laughs> Whatever works for you. 
The, Ian has a question. Ian has a question. What's your question, Ian? <laughs> how proud, how psyched is your inner teenage Star Trek fan at all these work you've gotten to do over the years? Oh, it's been great. I, I, I started reading Star Trek novels when I was very young. Um, I started reading them when I was around... Actually, around when the motion picture came out. Because I think the first Star Trek novel I actually read... Actually, no, that's not true. Before that, I read the James Blish book. So that was that was, yeah. that was was my entree into Trek prose. Um, and then and I read Spock Must Die. And then I read Roddenberry's novelization. Um, I didn't actually track down the Bantam books until later. But um, aside from Spock Must Die, I hadn't, yeah. I hadn't read any of the others. They have, by the way, but, an initial pressing of Spock Must yeah, Die over yeah, there. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, but... As it's you know, once once I hit my teen years, I was consuming Star Trek fiction at a great rate, both in in prose and comics form. And I, from that moment, I always wanted to be one of the guys who did that. Yeah. Uh, and I got to be for you know quite a while. So that was cool. That was that that's something I really enjoyed. What, what what else do you? Is there anything that you geek out on as much, or even what comes second place to Star Trek? Is it DC Comics, Marvel? Is it Star Wars? Is it in Lord terms of the of Rings? To work it, on stuff? No, I mean your personal oh, just love. In general? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, I don't know if I could narrow it down. I, there's there's a lot of different things. I mean, I, let's put it this way: if there was some way, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here in a in a perfect recreation of the 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 Starship Enterprise from the original series. the The only thing I could think of that would make me geek out as much would be if somebody had recreated the 4077 uh, from Mash. <laughs> Not see that coming because um, that was that but was no, one but of my that's cool. Yeah, I mean, sure, and there are similarities. Um, yeah. There are certainly yeah. similarities. I mean, you know, uh, I think a Hawkeye and, and and Bones would get along really well, <laughs> don't you? And uh, Major Probably. Burns would. Uh, who would befriend Major Burns? Nobody. Nobody. No. Ever no. 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 Uh, Shelby. Adam, you know, Shelby and I Major guess. Burns. Maybe. I mean, uh, uh, the the the. Quick, the Frank Burns was summed up in a conversation between him and Trapper when, when, when Frank asked Trapper, why does everybody take an instant dislike to me? And Trapper says, it saves time, Frank. <laughs> What's next? What are you working on? Oh, lots of things. Um, in terms, uh, as, as we record this, uh, my next book to be released will be uh, a novel called Marvel's Warriors 3, which is Godhood's End, which is the third book in my Tales of Asgard trilogy. There was a Thor book that came out in 2015, a Sif book, which came out in 2016. Oh, I love Sif. Yes. Now, are these, are these books springing from the MCU, or are they springing from... No, they're from... springing from the comics, although okay. if you're only familiar with the MCU, you'll be fine. Okay, They great. take place entirely in Asgard. Um, awesome. It's, it's, there are references to the other heroes, but, um, but basically it's, it's all taking place in Asgard. So it's uh, it's something if you're only familiar with Chris Hemsworth and Tom Hiddleston and not Stanley, Jack Kirby, and Walt Simonson, you'll be fine. Awesome. Um, the uh, I've also got coming uh, later this year an Orphan Black book. Oh wow! Called Classified Clone Report, which is a, a reference book that that collates bunch a bunch of different little bits of information from the series. It, it's crea- it's presented as files assembled by Delphine Cormier, one of the characters in the show, mm. of emails and reports and stuff um, that, that she's collected about the various happenings on the show. Yeah. Um, and that's going to come out concurrently with the release of the fifth season, which will be the final season this summer on BBC America. Awesome. Um, I've got stories in a bunch of anthologies, one that just got released called Aliens Bug Hunt, edited by Jonathan Mayberry. That ties into oh, the, the aliens world. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're all stories about specifically about the colonial marines. Awesome. And um, Knights of the Living Dead, which is co-edited by George Romero himself, which is all stories that take place around the events of the 1968 movie. Um, 
I've got a short story in an anthology called Baker Street Irregulars, which is alternate Sherlock Holmes stories. Uh, like with, a multiverse, a myriad universe? Yeah, of, sort of, of, of Sherlock Holmes stories. Mine take place in modern New York. Um, I've got a story come out, coming out this uh, this month in TV Gods Summer Programming, which is about gods on television. Um, and I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting. Oh, and then this fall I'm going to have the latest in my fantasy police procedural series, uh, Mermaid Precinct. <laughs> Uh, that sounds awesome. And, uh, wait, wait, and a bunch wait, of other stuff. Wait, wait, what's Mermaid Precinct? Are it's these, the are these of mermaid the cops? Called, no, no, no. The first book oh. was called Dragon Precinct, uh, <laughs> followed by Unicorn Precinct, Goblin Precinct, Griffin Precinct, and now Mermaid Precinct. It's a, it's a fantasy setting with humans and elves and dwarves and wizards and magic and stuff. But the main characters are detectives who solve crimes. And the city-state is divided into five precincts. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, mermaid Precinct is the docks. It's a port town. Oh, oh, oh uh, I Dragon see. Precinct okay. is the middle-class district. Unicorn yeah. Precinct is the upper-class district. Goblin Precinct is the slum, is the and um, and then Griffin Precinct is the castle that's the center of oh, um, wow. the now, city you've state. You've written so. a lot of stories based on existing material. Yes. If somebody went and made a movie or a TV show based on one of your original pieces. I would love that because they tend to like give you money for that. <laughs> um, and why? Oh God, any of them. I, you know, I. <laughs> the check clears. I don't care. Yeah, well, oh, that's part of it. Um, I mean, probably the one. I don't know. Uh, I like all of them. Well, what's the most visual? What's the, the most story-driven that could tell an extent? I mean, I think, I think honestly, the one that might be the, the coolest to do in in live-action form, only because of where it takes place, I have a series, TV Gods is one of them, a yeah. series of short stories that take place in Key West, Florida, involving a woman named Cassie Zukov, who's a bit, some, bit of a weirdness magnet. Uh, and it takes place in Key West, and it involves... Uh, scuba diving, rock and roll music, Norse gods, folklore, and beer drinking. Not necessarily in that order. Um, most of the action takes place either uh, in a bar, uh, an old town in Key West. Uh, several Norse gods are recurring characters, as is the ghost of an old wrecker captain, uh, an, immor an immortal barfly uh, who can't actually drink alcohol. Um, because if he falls asleep, he'll die. Um, and uh, an FBI agent who babbles a lot. And a house band that includes one of the Norse gods, Loki's ex-wife, as the drummer. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I think that would be fun just because it takes place in Key West, so it would have to film in Key right, West. Right, you would so get would to be... go down and visit. And, well, you know, yeah. yeah. So cool. cool. Well, listen, Keith, thank you so much for coming on the show. My you know, pleasure. You, I know you want to get back to your section there and sign some autographs, but um, this is a blast. I've always wanted to have you on the show, and, and we'll do it again. Well, what took you so long? I apologize. <laughs> Okay, so I'm in the booth here. We set up a little booth at the uh, Star Trek original series set tour, and we've got Dave Glantner. Did I pronounce it correctly? Uh, Glanter. Glanter, I'm sorry. Or Gallanter, either way. Ga Gallanter sounds half nice. Half the family That's... does one way, half the other. And you are a Star Trek novelist, and you have written, uh, give me the exact total of Star Trek books you've written. Uh, I, I don't even know. I think there's been uh, six or seven different Star Trek novels, um, three of them uh, original series, um, three of them Next Generation, um, a Voyager book, and various short stories and anthologies and so, things like so that. So walking this tour today was like walking through your own imagination a little bit. Well, you know what? I've actually been to the sets when they were uh, filming Star Trek New Voyages, and uh, this is the first time I've seen everything put together. But I will tell you this. Um, it has helped write books because to be on these sets and then to uh, choreograph and stage things 
things yeah. in your books, you have a much better mindset of where things were that uh, you didn't see on the TV show, you didn't see the depth yeah. and, and how close together things are. Yeah, and I, It feels much more like a shift. Being in the medical bay, the two different rooms, like it finally clicked. Oh, that's what the sick bay is like. It's right. the, there's McCoy's front room, and then the back is where the bio beds are, and Nurse Chapel walking through. It finally clicked for me. And this, you know, and, and these guys have taken the original designs, the original blueprints. I mean, they, they, uh, they uh, made it as real as possible. And it's, it's not exciting. just the it's not just the sights, but it's the sounds. Yes, you hear the yes. engines of the ship. You hear, uh, you know, the uh, the little sonar ping um, yeah. on the bridge, and uh, it's. Uh, it's a beautiful experience in that sense, and you can push the button. And the, the, uh, well, you weren't supposed to do that. Well, no. Well, James pushed the button, <laughs> okay. and uh, and the red alert lights flashed, yeah, and yeah. Uh, you heard the klaxon screaming. And uh, if that doesn't put you on the ship, um, and it, even though it's not, it's a set. Yeah. But if that doesn't put you there, uh, nothing else will. So tell me a little bit about writing. Um, to since we're in a TOS mindset today. Writing the TOS characters. We were talking a little bit about before about uh, you got to really sink your teeth into Bones McCoy and got to do something you, you never thought would be approved by the powers that be that you got I, to slip I in. I did. I got, uh, I got a chance um, to uh, have him uh, challenge Kirk and say uh, about somebody living or dying, who's going to decide, McCoy asks, James T. Christ? <laughs> um, and I, I didn't think they'd let that in, but they did. It's well, one of it's my in, favorite lines. In character for Bones during a moment of uh, of strife. And and when I write a, a classic Trek novel, a, a, a TOS novel, um, I like to do it like you're watching an extended episode of the show. Mm. So every chapter end is a commercial break. Um, as best as I can make it, and that you feel that the characters are hopefully saying the things that they would say. Do on you the show. hear the music in your head? I do. It, I awesome. hear the music. Yeah. I hear the actors. You can't get out of Nimoy's uh, uh, head and voice yeah. when uh, when you're doing his character, and uh, and that's my goal. And the highest compliment anybody ever pays me is that uh, is that it sounds like they sound like the characters they've seen on TV. Awesome. Well, Dave, I want to let you go back to your table. Before I do, if there's someone listening right now who has not for whatever reason, has not yet sunk their teeth into one of your books, because there is a vast, vast uh, catalog of Star Trek books out there. And if you were to say, you want to read one of my things, the number one you should go to is? Uh, I would say Troublesome Minds, okay. which is a very Spock-centric novel, or Crisis of Consciousness, which is another Spock-centric novel. Okay. So and if those you are... love Spock, pick up one of those books. So what was the first one again? Troublesome Minds. Troublesome Minds and Crisis of, Crisis Consciousness. of Consciousness. And they are both available wherever you find... Uh, Amazon, Barnes you got Noble, it. Noble yeah. all over. And you can also download to the Kindle, to yes, the Nook, indeed. to the Schnook, to all those things. <laughs> I, iBooks, all of them. Awesome. Well, listen, thanks again. And we've got some fans are now trickling in that probably want to buy some of your stuff. and I maybe so. Maybe get your John Hancock also. Right. So, thank you for having me. Thank you. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. Energize. All right, test. Yeah, Wait, sound. check. Hello, are we uh, recording? Yes. Uh, level is that okay? Is that Kevin? You? you know, you've actually we've never recorded you on this show. Up I don't know that we. Ha I think that's correct. <laughs> 
Dayton's been on. Yes. But you haven't. Well, you know, I'm, I'm more of a phantom, I guess. <laughs> you, know, it's, it's, you, know, you can't look at me in direct light. <laughs> Kevin Dilmore is the author of roughly 900,000 Star Trek novels. Many of them are written in collaboration with Dayton Ward. Not all of them. No, all, well, I have had several short stories in the Star Trek universe on my own, but if it's a novel, I wrote it with Dayton. I've not written a full novel myself. Well, why is that? Yeah, why is that? Man? I'm inept. You have a bug on you. I right, do? right by your Delta shield. There's a bug crawling on you. Tell, tell the people at home who are listening uh, you know, about... I'm, yeah, go ahead. I, well, I mean, to, to legitimately answer the question Um, you know I have always worked as a full-time writer outside of my Star Trek writing Uh, I began as a newspaper reporter I currently am a senior writer at Hallmark Cards and I've never really been able to hit the deadline on a full novel on my own Mm. so I uh, Dayton graciously makes time in his schedule that, uh, you know, here are projects we could work on together. And and then when he is working on something solo, then, you know, I work on my regular stuff. But gotcha. When, uh, but when his schedule allows for us to collaborate, then that's what we do. Well, so far the formula has been working out. So well, we've, uh, we've had a lot of fun. We've been doing it together for 17 years now. Wow. Tell us a little bit about the people at home can't see it, but the shirt you're wearing. Ah. This is this no. Is, ju- this is not no typical Star this Trek is shirt. My Anovos shirt. It's, I believe they call it an, a uh, Star Trek retro uniform shirt. It's command green, which is probably not a color you uh, readily identify. It's with, never been uh, on television. Iconic. No, but yeah. uh, uh, it was something that uh, that was a licensed color. Um, it's really more evocative of the weird colors that they had for uniforms in the original Gold Key comics, which is why I got it. Um, you are a walking cannon breach is what you are today. <laughs> yes, that's exactly my, my whole goal is to uh, um, take it reverently, but not too serious. Yeah. Well, you guys love this Gold Key comics. Right? You did You did a yeah. hats off to Gold Key recently, we right? We did yeah. uh, in Star Trek Waypoint, which is a limited series by IDW Publishing. Uh, in issue number two, we wrote a story. Um, I believe we called it, ultimately we called it the uh, Menace of the Mechanicatrons. (laughs) And the whole idea of it was to bring in elements that Gold Key would bring into their stories that would work great on in comics because you have no more budget than ink and paper. Right, right, right. So you can have Kirk and Spock at the controls of these weird robots fighting Klingons on an alien planet and, and you know, it costs the same. So we like doing that goofy stuff. Yeah, no, it's it was a good one. Um, what is the process between what is the process between the two of you? Especially how has it changed since internet didn't really exist back when you started? The uh, advantage that we enjoyed is that we live roughly in the same town. Uh, Dayton and I, uh, throughout our career, have lived no more than 40 miles apart. So we would trade chapters back and forth on the internet, but a lot of time for our brainstorming or even just you know the, the, our creative just running around. I mean, a, a day for us that we're together typically might be, you know, go get some lunch, hit a couple of used bookstores, a couple of comic stores. While we're driving, we're riffing on stories. Uh, we attended a convention in Denver 
a couple of weeks ago, and on our drive to Denver and drive back, which is about nine hours each way, we brainstormed all sorts of stuff. So uh, we really just kind of, uh, of, of throw ideas around, see what amuses us, or see what we think we could have fun taking. Uh, um, and, and it's really kind of, we need to settle on a story we can divide well. Um, you know, like uh, in Legacies, uh, uh, book three, uh, Purgatory's Key was the last novel we worked on together. Which ruled, by the way. Well, you're very kind, thank <laughs> you. Uh, he, he did a lot of the, um, you know, uh, more federation the tradition federation mission you know the objective of getting into the uh um the the alien stronghold and disabling or destroying it whereas i took the first drafts on chapters that were much more metaphysical you know with uh uh and and number one and joanna mccoy uh in this floating the nether nether void of uh they were in the, if I may. Sure. Let me see if I got it. Because they maybe, were. They maybe were, I'll get it. They maybe were you'll in, explain it to me. They were in an alternate dimension. Yes. They were in the zone that the um, Tantalus device zaps you to. That and it's was not, what the, we were... not the mirror universe, just some additional universe. Correct. Correct. And what you later discovered is that it was sort of like a. Um, uh, uh, almost like a um, uh, like a hollow projection of your thoughts, more right? or less. Yes, you could, you were able to manipulate the. I mean, it was it was a realm that allowed anybody who was in it to kind of craft their own reality. Right, but they the, didn't know. But they didn't know. It yeah, until, so they until, they until were, yeah. yeah. I basically I was able to write Sarek as Doctor as Doctor Strange. That was my goal. Oh, cool. Yeah. Now that you mentioned that, it, it really sense, did click it? in. Perfect. Yeah. yeah, it's a great Sarek story. So and thank Ma- you. And McCoy's daughter is uh, is great. I mean, she's she's a chip off the old block. You that know? was I, mean, I am a huge fan of Dr. McCoy. I've always had uh, partiality to uh, Starfleet Medical. Um, if if you look at a lot of the stuff that Dayton and I have done together, more than likely, if there's a uh, a thread of some sort of a uh, of a medical thread or medical need, I'll end up interjecting myself into that. But yeah. uh, I definitely grabbed uh, Joanne to write in uh, from her perspective not only because I wanted her to kind of be a chip off the old block but uh, my daughter is roughly the same age as Joanna she was just finishing a uh, um, run of school mm. in Starfleet Academy and my daughter's just graduating college right now yeah. so uh, it was there's some, I just kind of drew a little bit of her in as well Hopefully she won't be uh, kidnapped by... What were they... Ki- there was... Uh, oh, there's all sorts there of... Was, uh, they put uh, her through all kinds of rigmarole. Yeah, she, she was... Uh, um, you know, yeah, she became a hostage, right. and uh, <laughs> there's all sorts of stuff that happened. That was more in Dave's book that she became a oh, hostage. Oh, I see. Okay, but good. But then good. when uh, that, when the Tantalus device was, was turned against her... Yeah. Uh, and she was zapped into the weird realm. That's when I get a the chance realm. to write her. Yeah. That's when you got it, in the realm. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, listen, you know, it's it's fun because you've got here, you know, 12 of your comrades that you probably don't oh get a chance gosh. to see that no, often. This is, we didn't join you at lunch. How was lunch? Was that just a raucous? It was wonderful. You know, it wasn't that. We we um, we divided and conquered. Um, you know, I'm from Kansas City and flew all the way to upstate New York. And so what do I do is go to a barbecue joint. Um, but, you know, again, uh, we go for the company. Company, not the cuisine, right. and the uh, but oh, they did a fine job. I, I'm not, I, I should 
would say the uh, they their smoked brisket and pulled pork was fantastic. This just in: if you come to the Star Trek tour, you will have a good. <laughs> I saw the barbecue place. It is within walking distance of here. Yeah, yeah. You it's wanna, about you one wanna, and a half minutes on foot. You'll have a good lunch. Yes. So. Um, go to Kansas City and get uh, real the pro, the, prop, the proper sauce, ah. and then come here. And yeah, they, they had four different sauces, and the closest that they had that came to Kansas City barbecue uh, was ketchup. Oh, <laughs> it's okay though. It's okay. Ian's got a question so, here. Question I'm asking everybody: What does your inner geek think of the fact that you've been able to do all of this? You must be yeah, as a kid who grew up watching this stuff. What does it mean to you? Yeah, it's I, I really I never really answer this question well. Um, I look at this as a a tapestry of storytelling over the last 50 years and I've been invited to sew in a block of this quilt in a sense and that's always fun to have somebody and, and recognize that somewhere a story that I collaborated on or maybe even originated myself somewhere is somebody's you know, top five moments of Star Trek, and uh, you know, probably my mom. Um, but, but the idea of being able to contribute to that, um, you know, to kind of, you know, maybe somebody had an idea in the Star Trek universe, told a story that resonated with me, that made me want to tell a story that could inspire another storyteller to paint a picture of Star Trek, give me a, uh, a facet of a character, uh, a nuance in the universe that I had never considered that makes me want to think about Star Trek or renews my enjoyment of it in a whole new way. That's the fun part of being that kid who now is able to do this kind of thing. And then Star Trek-wise, what's next? For me, I well, you know what's next? I can't talk about it. Uh-oh. Um, I know. No, I can't. I can talk here. Let Are you me. saying that we'll discover no, something no, no. new from you? No, Is that what you're no? I, all right. Okay. I, I, I will, sorry, I will sorry. tell you that I'm not connected in that in any way other than uh, than through Hallmark. However, uh, if I can uh, um, jump universes for a moment, um, I worked on for the last year and a half a uh, seven ornament three-year series for keepsake ornaments that uh, is uh, connected to the first Star Wars film. Oh. And we were at Star Wars Celebration in April, uh, walking out, uh, I mean, you know, showing it to everyone, unveiling it for the first time. Um, And uh, Veronica Hart from CBS was walking out with me. She's um, Senior Vice President of Consumer Products, and... She was walking out, have, having seen this unveiling in front of a crowd of Star Wars fans. The first thing she said to me was, when are we going to do this for Star Trek? Wow. I can't answer that, but I can tell you I'm already working. Hey, look at that. A scoop. Breaking here on Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. Sh- We're all friends here, right? You know, it's funny we mentioned the D word, Discovery. I just realized right over there, David Mack, if we all pinned him down and shot him with some truth serum because he is writing the prequel novel. That's true, but the thing is with Mac... He won't say a thing. Well, no, you don't need to shoot him with truth serum. He shoots himself with (laughs) bourbon on an hourly basis. We just need to wait for him to get just 
liquored up enough. That's right. You know, we, no, you joking. know what? He will, won't say anything. I will tell you this. I will tell you this. You know, and Dave and I have worked together for a long time. There's been a lot of uh, of people within the Star Trek universe. We absolutely respect the non-disclosure agreements that we sign on the facets of this that we yeah, work. I know the microphones are still on, so you're going to say that. We appreciate that. <laughs> Kevin Dilmore, thank you so much uh, for taking time to talk with us. We love you here on Engage, and we love you on the internet. Uh, you're a, a great gentleman, and uh, everybody loves you. Bless you. And your beautiful green shirt. Oh, I love my green shirt. <laughs> so Ian's jealous of my green shirt. <laughs> he said he's going to talk about it all the way home. It's true. I may steal it from him. <laughs> <laughs> and then you'll see. You'll wonder what what uh, um, you know. Uh, um, well, we've got. We know we have command gold, right? And engineering and and uh, uh, support services red, right? And science is science blue. blue. But what is pasty white? <laughs> Because that's all I'll have. In prison orange is what I'll <laughs> Yes. All right. No, I, this has been a delight. I'm all, uh, invite me back. All I'd right. Like to talk again. We'll, we'll see you soon. Bye.